We want to read the passage that we just happened to be in today, which is James 5, 1 through 11. And uh, Mark Foreman told me, he taught me that if something is awkward, just call it out. So there's, there was no juxtaposition to the reading of this and the tithe offering, okay? So we're just going to read James 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. Patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the faith, faith of, in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's patience and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. All right, come on. You got, we got some scripture for today? Yeah. I think we do. I think that, is about as, that scripture is as robust as a Thanksgiving meal. <laughs> There's a lot to chew on in that. But uh, before we jump into our message, I just want to give a shout out to Nate. Come on, last week, if you didn't hear Nate's message, Nate was preaching. Yeah, come on. It was so good. I, he, remember he had like the mirror, you know, and he had the, the, the window. Remember that whole thing? Oh, so beautifully illustrated. I loved it. All right, well, we're going in this, into today, uh, this passage that James is really in this moment is like a mountaintop summit passage because all along the way, James has been getting us ready for this passage. He's been getting us in shape to be able to engage with these challenging words. And I really believe in these words, there is as much encouragement and inspiration as there is challenge for us today. All right, I want to get us to the heartbeat, the the pulse of this section. Look at verse eight with me. Verse eight, it says this, you too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Because the Lord coming is near. Come on. Amen to that. And what is amazing is the way that James frames the basis for how we live this incredible life of Jesus is all rooted and anchored in this expectation, this hope in what is coming. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're like, what is this whole like Jesus is returning thing? Why are Christians so caught up in this? And I'm hoping this morning, 
that we're going to be able to unpack a little bit more of that for you and why it is so important that we have a correct view of Jesus' return and how the way we view Jesus' return has a radical impact and significance for the way we live right now, today. All right? So the wisdom from above that James has been training us in only makes sense in the light of our hope that is coming from above. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Every eye. So right now we kind of live in this time where some people believe in Jesus, some people don't. And we're all working in our life by faith to see the signs of God's presence in our life. But there will be a time when everyone will see him as clear as day, whether we want to or not. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. What does this mean, Ray? What what, what are we talking about here? This whole Jesus' return thing? Number one, it is about the fact that we believe Jesus is literally going to come back, that this is a literal future event where the entire world is going to see him. And there is both an inspirational quality and some accountability with this reality. The reason why it's so important that we have our hopes set on his return is because it inspires us in the way that we're called to live and it holds us accountable. And we all need to be held accountable. You with me? Come on. When I was a kid, I remember we would be babysat by my great grandmother. All right. My granny, my bisabuela. And she was a tough granny. And she walked around in her baston. Baston in Spanish is her cane. And she would get around in that cane, but she was tough, mamma jamma. And she would, you know, correct us with that baston. One day, we, my, my brother and I showed my granny, who was really in charge of the house, we went outside, and she came after us because we weren't doing what we were supposed to. We snuck back in. We locked her outside. We locked her out. She tried to get in. She couldn't get in. We were laughing. We were relishing in our sovereignty and the authority that we had taken over our home. And she walked out to the curb and stood on the curb. I don't, I don't, don't know what she was doing out there. Maybe, <laughs> I don't know what she was doing. And uh, we just for a while just basked in the sovereignty of our will in our home. But then three o'clock rolls around. Three o'clock, that's the 30-minute mark before my mom came home from school. Now, my mom was a teacher, and she worked in tough neighborhoods. She worked in underprivileged areas. She worked in areas that were um, dealt with a lot of gangs. She had kids pull knives on her. Teachers were shot there. She had kids. If they got frustrated with a classmate, would pick up the desk and throw them out of the class. So my mom was a tough mama. And when mama was coming home, you better deal because a reckoning was coming. And so we would go open the door. We let granny back in, you know, and then we would start begging her. Granny, please don't tell mom. Granny, please don't tell mom. And I can still see her sitting on the couch, resolute, holding her cane. And us just petting her, kissing her, <laughs> hugging her. Please, granny, don't tell. And it's all in Spanish, of course, you know. And we would be hugging her, kissing her. And, uh, well, then reckoning came. (laughs) But we're all a little bit like that, right? We all need a little bit of accountability. We need it in the weight room. We need it on the sports field, right? Can you imagine, you know, just jettisoning the coach? 
How hard would we really work? Would we run the extra mile? Would we really you know, hit that extra bench? Probably not. We all need a coach. We all need accountability. And that's what James is talking about here. The hope that Jesus is returning inspires us. There's a time coming when God is going to make all things right. So don't lose heart. But it's an accountability. Don't get caught up in the way of this world because Jesus is coming back. And that's what I want to look at today and what it looks like in our life. Listen, we believe that Jesus' return represents not just a literal future event, but also it represents a future reality where God's will is going to be perfectly fulfilled on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? Okay, let me unpack that for you. What does that really mean? Number one, it means that the best and the most beautiful parts of our world are going to become permanent, they're going to be renewed, and they're going to shine with the brilliance of the sun. The best parts of our world and our life. I want to go to the next slide. Um, Best parts, what do we mean by that? The things that bring joy and peace and comfort, the goodness of our world. This was a, a food drive. I'm sorry, a clothes drive where the next gen team was collecting clothes. And I want to just thank you guys. They filled up because you were so generous, boxes of clothes, trailers of clothes to give to Afghan refugees. Come on, let's just give a round of applause because you know what? We know that it's it's Christ in us that inspires that kind of generosity. And the best parts of our world are going to become permanent and renewed. Jesus' return also means that the worst parts of our world are going to be judged. Listen to this. All the sin, the injustice, the greed, the arrogance, and the violence of this world will be judged. That's what James is talking about right here. And what he's saying is that what we hope in matters. Where you're hoping is shaping your life right now. I want to give you an example. Listen to this quote by Eli Wiesel. Is it Wiesel? Eli Wiesel? Wiesel. I don't know. Okay, this guy went through the Nazi concentration camps of Auschwitz. This guy had some dark days. And so he had, a, he had some of the most profound words on the importance and the reality of hope in the face of darkness. Listen to what he says here. Just as man cannot live without dreams... He cannot live without hope. If you're alive, you have a hope in something. The question is, what is your hope in? Listen, if dreams reflect the past, hope, I love this, summons the future. What you hope in is calling forth that reality into your life today. What is your hope in? And what James is saying is that when your hope is in Christ's return, It summons the future of that coming kingdom into your life today. And we all have our hope in something. You know, we have our hope in meeting our soulmate. We have our hope in where our career is going. Have you ever had a moment when you're like, gosh, you just wish there was something would change in the way you see the world is? Have you ever seen something going on in the world and you just wish for a better world? Have you ever seen something in yourself that made you wish for a better self? We all are hoping, and those little hopes are just homing beacons training us for the ultimate and greatest hope of humanity, which is the return of God. 
to live among his people. Listen, hoping in Jesus' return, when you hope in his return, you are summoning the generosity and the grace of Jesus into your present. James is going to talk about when our hope is in our material possessions, what that looks like. He's going to talk about when our hope is in our wealth, when it's in fame or when it's in this world, what it looks like. But when your hope is in Christ, it changes the quality, the texture, and the trajectory of your life. God's generosity and grace causes peace and healing and joy to flourish. And we call this the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God. No. Hope in Jesus is coming, empowers us with a patience and a perseverance that allows us to live the Jesus life that without this hope, you really can't live. Remember, the life that we're being trained to live in for Jesus is only possible if your hope is in his return. So, James highlights two key areas to show us what this future hope and judgment looks like in our lives. He's talking about wealth and our relationship with each other as the church. All right, let's talk about wealth for a minute. And to do that, I want to take us to verse one. You ready for this? Wealth. This is some challenging words. So brace yourself. All right, brace yourself. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Number one, James and the Bible do not condemn wealth in itself. What the Bible condemns is the way wealth is acquired and ways in which we use the wealth that we have. That's what the Bible takes very seriously. God is wealthy, and we'll see that. God loves rich people. You can't get any richer than God. It's the way we get it and what we do with it the Bible calls us to take account of. Now listen, watch where he goes with this. Ready? Verse three. Your corro- their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Here we go. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter, and you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Now, these are some challenging words, and it does us good to pause and reflect. These scriptures are like the kind of, it's like, I don't know, it can be a little bit like doing your taxes, you know? It's like, ah, can somebody else do them for me? You know what I mean? It's like, I just want to rush past these challenging passages do you ever relate to that in the Bible? Am I the only one? Yeah, I know, I know. You guys are way more, way more holy than me. I, I, me, I just, you know, oh, that's a little intense. I'm going to fast forward that. But it's good for us to pause and listen to these passages because they have so much to teach us about God's heart. Let me ask you this. If I stopped preaching right now and you had to walk out of this sermon and someone asked you, what did you learn about God? What does this passage right here teach you about God? Take a moment just real quick, and just share amongst yourselves 15 seconds. One thing you learn about God. Go ahead and share. Go ahead. 15 seconds. Share.
You get it? You get something? Okay, you got something here? Listen. God takes greed seriously. And thank God he does. How many of us here are hoping the world becomes a greedier and greedier place in the next five years? Raise your hand. Yeah, some of us are like, yes, please. How many of us are hoping we will become more greedy people? Thank God he hates greed even more than we do. Listen, this is what God's against. Number one, hoarding, verse three. Number two, in verse four, he's against defrauding. That is, not paying people what they have earned and deserve to, so that you can make a greater profit. Number three, selfish indulgence. This does not mean you can't enjoy the fruit of your labor and have fun with it. It means, though, that you are, complete, you are ignoring the use of your resources to display God's generosity to other people. You're only using it for yourself. That's indulgence. And lastly, using violence in verse 6, acquiring wealth through violent means. The day of Jesus' return is a day of judgment against greed. He calls it a day of slaughter. Let's go to the pigs. Yep. And so he's got this metaphor. People think that they are accruing wealth and that it's storing up glory and honor for themselves. And James is like, they're not storing up glory and honor. They are storing up wrath and judgment against themselves. And now that's a sobering word. Now, when James talks like this, he's doing it. Do you remember? He wants to inspire us. How does this inspire you? God is going to put things to right. And there'll, be, there'll come a time when there is no more greed in this world. And he holds us accountable. It holds us accountable because there's coming a time when we will have to part ways with greed in our own life and give up on it. So don't cling to it now. Because on the day of Jesus' return, a reckoning is coming. And God is going to wipe this earth clean from all greed and everyone who clings to it. And that's sobering. But praise God, think of a day. Think of a time when there's no greed in your heart. No greed. When you look at the five o'clock news, no greed, no injustice. Can you imagine how boring would the news be? It would just be like, what's there to watch? It'd be like, oh my gosh, another good deed. Oh my gosh, just more happiness, more joy. Ah, news has gotten boring. You ever feel like that? It's like, what would we even watch? <laughs> but imagine a time when all greed has been put away. Now, why does James write about this? Well, for two reasons. Number one, because he wants to call us to be patient when we see evil abounding. Have you ever turned on the news and seen evil abounding? Have you ever felt discouraged by the corruption and the injustice in the world? Come on now. Ever felt that way at all? A little? Maybe? Kind of? Have you ever felt disheartened by the greed and corruption in the world? And ask yourself, if there's a loving God, then why isn't he dealing with this? How does he even put up with it? I have a friend who worked with IJM, International Justice Mission. Their work is to free children from sex slavery. He, in particular, worked with these operations that were breaking into places and actually physically freeing the kids. And I thought, man, 
bro, you must have seen the most amazing things and seen kids set free. And he's like, actually, I'm going through a dark night of the soul. I saw the most awful things happening to kids. And I'm struggling with where is this loving God that I believe in? When is he going to put the world to rights? When is he going to stop people from abusing children to make more money? Families selling their own children into slavery to make more money. And it broke his heart. Have you ever been there? If you've been there and if you're there, I want to encourage you to read Psalm 37. Some of us get there because of the evil we see in the world. Some of us get there because of the evil we've had to endure personally. And what James is saying is, look, the day of judgment for that evil and that greed is coming when God will put the world to rights. So don't be disheartened. Judgment is coming for evil in this world. Be encouraged. The only one who can put the world to right is coming and he will make all things new. Don't give up. Number two, he says, well, I mean, let me read Psalm 37 and 1. Look at this Psalm. Psalm 37 and 1. Do not fume because of evildoers or envy those who do wrong. Some of us get tempted to become angry and frustrated and caught up in that anger because of the wrong we see in the world. Others of us get caught up in envy. If you can't beat them, join them. And we actually get tempted to join in because you know what? No one seems to care. Everybody cheats on their taxes. Everybody gets away with it. Why shouldn't I do it too? Don't you know what I'm talking about there? You get a little bit like, am I naive for being generous? I remember one time God had called my wife and I to tithe off this money we had saved for buying a home. 10% of all the money that we had to buy a home. And we were already struggling to find a home. And but we couldn't deny it. God was calling us to do it. And so we did it. And it was awesome. But a year later, not able to buy a home, I started to wonder after home after home where we put our offer and people were buying or beating us on the home purchase because they were throwing down all cash on those houses. And I thought, Man, were we dumb? Were we, were we naive to give that money secretly to this other family so they can maybe start buying a home? Were we foolish? Ever feel like that? Where being generous is really just naivety and foolishness in a world that's a dog-eat-dog world. And James is guarding our heart against that. Remember, Jesus is returning. Don't, if you can't beat him, don't join him. Don't give up on doing good. Hope in Jesus' return frees us and it cleanses us to be patient and to persevere. Patience. Look at patience for a minute. Patience. The Greek is makrothumeo. Makrothumeo. Hey, say it with me. Makrothumeo. It means to have an attitude of calmness. Look at this. And confident trust. I'm not going to get worked up in my anger. James says, anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And some of us get so caught up in our anger about the injustice that we see in our country, that we see in the world, that it robs us of our patient and gracious spirit. And he's saying, don't let that happen to you. Be patient. Don't lose heart. God will make things right. Number two, 
Patience is an attitude that strengthens and empowers perseverance. And so he's talking about persevere. What does that mean? To persevere is our capacity to stand firm in doing good. It's that ability to, I'm going to keep doing good and not give up, even if I see other people succeeding in their greediness, in their injustice. Look at this. Proverbs 11.25 says this, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Who needs to hear that this morning? Do you need to be reminded that you're not a fool for being generous? And that as you give generously of your time and your resources, God's promise to you is you will prosper. God sees you. Do you remember when Jesus saw that woman at the temple treasury? All these people are coming in with their big treasure buckets, you know, and they're dumping them in there. Yeah, look at what I got for the Lord. Boom. And God's like, yeah, that's cool. And she's like, that's cool. That's cool. And then this woman walks up, this widow, and she pulls out, you know, her little coin. She had one penny, not even, not even worth a penny. And she put it in. And Jesus said, that woman gave more than everybody else because she gave all she had. I wonder, did she, did she ever know that Jesus saw her that day? And that he was so enthralled by her generous heart that he wanted that story remembered for, thou, for as long as the Bible is read. You are not a fool for being generous. And God will remember your generosity when you stand before him on his day. Secondly, he talks to us about how we treat each other in the church. Oh, now, now really brace yourself. Are you ready? Come on. Verse nine, the church, our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters, as a family. Verse nine, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. Do you feel the accountability? The judge is standing at the door. Mom is coming home. (laughs) Mom is coming home. You better let grandma back in. Okay, let me start with what this is not saying and then what it is saying. What he's not saying is by do not grumble, is he's saying this is not a gag order to hide or cover up abuse, injustice, hurt, corruption, or conflict. What James is not saying is if there's conflict in your relationships, don't grumble, just cover it up, pretend like it's not there. Be a good Christian and it will all just go away. Because that always works in a marriage. It doesn't, right? We, we know it doesn't. It doesn't work in marriage. It doesn't work in our friendships. It doesn't work in this church. And it doesn't work in communities. James is not saying, by not saying don't grumble, he's not saying to cover up and ignore the wrong that we see happening. And sometimes the church itself needs to be called out. Amen? Yeah, yeah, I say amen. Come on, I'm the pastor. I'm admitting it. Sometimes the church needs to be called out. Amen. 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 And the church, yeah, yeah, okay. I was, I was a little too enthusiastic. No, I was joking. I was joking. <laughs> I was joking. But the church begins with us. Put your finger on your chest. Repeat after me. I am the church. I am the church. The church begins with me. Right here. Okay, watch. Watch where he goes. Christian community must be a place where we learn to teach others how to face conflict and sin, 
unto reconciliation and repairing relationship. Are you with me on that? It's got to be a place for that. Listen to Eugene Peterson in his intro to the book of James, in his book, his Bible, The Message, says this, Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good behavior. No duh. (laughs) No duh. Are you with me on that? You ever experienced that? Here, watch. They are rather places where human misbehavior is brought out in the open, faced, and dealt with. Now, that's important. Because as you get to know a Christian community, you're going to experience hypocrisy, sin, selfishness. You know, you're going to, stuff's going to happen. I remember one time someone hit my car in the parking lot out here, just smashed the side of the car, left me a note with their phone number, but it was a false phone number. Aww. Yeah, yeah. You can't let that stuff discourage you about the church. You can't look at that and go, well, the church is supposed to be perfect. You should laugh and go, yeah, we're a bunch of sinners. Yeah, we're all recovering sinners. It's okay. It's okay. We don't have it all figured out. And we are learning to be gracious and to be merciful by being together. And and that's what Eugene's talking about here. And that's what James is talking about. He's saying, don't grumble. Now, listen. As a community and individually, we've got to learn to receive correction. So this message is not about, okay, now you're going to go tell people and put them in their place. That's not what this is about. This is about how we need to receive correction. Not how you need to go give it. How we all need to receive it. Look at Proverbs 15, 31. Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Yeah? Proverbs 15, 10. The one who hates correction will die. die. Yep, that's true. Okay, but none of us wants, it's not easy to face where we're wrong. I remember one time going to the DMV, I got in a ticket, it, they claimed, the camera claims that I ran a red light on a turn. And I knew they were wrong. I knew I stopped at that red light. And I felt a great injustice had been committed against me. And I wrote up my little speech for the judge. I was convinced of my innocence. I went to the DMV and as I'm waiting, I noticed this little machine. Have you seen these machines? If you type in your, your ticket number, it will show you a video of your <laughs> incident. And I, I was walking by that little machine. Oh, I don't need to look at that. I know I'm right. I know I'm right. I don't need to look at that thing. And finally, oh, 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 what am I so afraid of? Typed in my citation number in there and there was this little video came up there was my car. Yep, there it is. See, I'm slowing down. I'm going to... No, I didn't. There I go, right through the red light. <laughs> I was convinced of my innocence until I saw that video. We all need accountability. Mom's coming home. And Jesus' return holds us accountable. Don't grumble against one another. When James talks about grumbling, he's not talking about life-giving correction, which we all need to learn to receive. He's talking about something else. Listen to this. Grumble. What does it mean in the Greek? Let's go to the next verse. It's the word stenazo, and it means to complain and to give vent. Have you ever complained about somebody behind their back? You're not trying to judge them, but man, you just frustrated and you just need to get it off your chest. Ever done that? Ever just felt the pleasure of venting about someone who was on your nerves behind their back. Ever, ever, never do that? Raise your hand if you've done that. In your life? Raise, raise your hand if you've ever done this in your life. Oh, some of you. Come on now. Yeah. How about today? Trying to get out the door to church. Your, your kids, maybe? <laughs> Come on. Listen, 
What does it mean to grumble? What's James talking about? He's, he means this. Listen. When we are speaking negatively of others, number one. Oof. All right, number two. When we are seeking to gain an ally in sympathy for ourselves. Uh-oh. Yep, yep, been there, done that. Yep. Number three, when we are focusing on the wrong in the other and ignoring the wrong in us. Okay. When we aren't committed to reconcile with the person in humility. When we are speaking negatively about others in this way, we are grumbling. And what James is doing is saying, look, you are going to go into community and meet all kinds of imperfect people, especially those crazy pastors. Don't grumble. Because when you grumble, you are giving an open door to the enemy, to the devil, to bring division, dissension, and bitterness into your heart and into your marriage and into your parenting, into your church, into your workplace, into your neighborhood. And sometimes we just feel like we got to vent. Come on. Have you ever felt how good it feels to complain about someone to someone else? Doesn't it just feel good? You with me? Tell them, raise your hand if you felt how good it feels. Come on. I don't know why, but it feels so like relieving a burden to vent. And what James is saying, that is a sinful desire. It's an indulging in something that is opening the door to evil. Don't do it. And so, we all need accountability. with me? Let's pause. I want to invite the band out. And the band comes out. Let's let the Holy Spirit speak to us, okay? Close your eyes. Just, just for a second. Indulge me. Close your eyes. Invite the Spirit to bring to mind anybody you've been grumbling about. Okay? Just open your heart to the Lord who doesn't want to condemn you, but He wants to free you from the root of bitterness. Lord, is there anybody we've been complaining about, grumbling about, that you want to bring to mind right now? Is there anyone in our home, our workplace, someone from our past? Someone in this church? Do you have that person in mind? Now listen to these words. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Invite the Lord to give you a perspective of mercy and compassion for that person. And if God brought someone to mind, I want to challenge you to write it in a private place. You know, don't be all writing it on your wrist so the person next to you can see it. But write that person's name down somewhere. And I want to ask you to commit to the next seven days until we meet each other again next weekend to pray for that person. To pray for God's blessing on them. To pray for God's mercy on them. To pray for outpourings of God's compassion on them. And see what that does to your heart. Lord, you're coming soon and you are coming with mercy and compassion 
and you will come and judge the greed and the grumbling that has torn this world apart. Cleanse us in any way in which we have allowed that spirit of the enemy to take root in us and renew unto us a spirit of mercy, gentleness, and compassion. What we put our hope in, it matters. Maybe some of us here have put our hope in things that are not really suited for a person made in the image of God. Have you put your hope in something for the future that can save you when you stand before God's throne? Is what you hope in enough to save you when you stand on the brink of eternity? Is it enough to summon a future of grace and generosity into your life today when our hope is in anything other than Jesus himself? We have settled for less. Romans 8, 24, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? Listen, your hope can save you when it is in Jesus. A hope that is, stands on the generous and gracious life that he lived. A hope that stands on his death on the cross to absorb into himself your sin. To absorb in himself all of our greed, all of our grumbling, all of our gossip. He took it on himself. It's a hope that stands on his resurrection and on the confidence that he is going to return to make all things right. Is your hope, is it in Jesus? Or maybe this morning you're like, you know, I've been putting my hope in other things that were good, but they cannot compare to Jesus. And if you have never put your hope in him as the savior and the leader of your life, I want to give you a chance to do that right now right here, right wherever you're standing. And as you put your hope in Jesus, that hope is going to begin to summon a supernatural generosity and grace into your life today. It's not about go out and try harder. It's about realigning your hope where it matters, where it's eternal. And if you this morning need to renew your hope in Jesus and his return, and his love for you, and his victory over death, his victory over greed and over all the junk in this world, then I wanna invite you right now, wherever you're standing, to raise your hand up. And as you put your hand up, you are making a statement of faith that you need God in your life. And I'll tell you right now, it's a, it's a humbling thing to say, I need God. You're saying, you know what, on my own, I can't stand against greed and grumbling and complaining, but God, by putting my hope in you, I am opening my heart to your generous and gracious spirit. And if you've never done that, put your hand up here. Come on. And admit you need God. I see you. Come on. I see you guys. I see you. I see you. You're not doing this. I see you in the back for me or for this church. You're doing this between you and God. It's an act of faith. I see you guys. Some of them. 
Let's pray. Put your hands out like this. And pray this simple prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for putting my hope in anything besides you. Your love is unconditional. Your generosity knows no bounds. Your grace is eternal. And I welcome your spirit into me. I receive your forgiveness, your cleansing presence. Help me to go out this week and live in the spirit of your generosity and graciousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, come on, come on. That's so good. That's so good. Listen, if you raise your hand before you leave, would you come down and just pray with us, prayer team? Come on down to the front. Come down and pray with our prayer team. Listen, before you go, before you go, would you tell somebody that you came with why you raised your hand? And don't forget to pray for that person that came to mind today. Have a good week. Have a good week.